Let us pray. Come just as you are to worship. And Lord, our, our worship includes listening and putting ourselves under your word. And Lord, as we uh, listen to uh, Matthew 13 preached tonight, may we put ourselves under, under that parable and may we be good soil that produces a plentiful harvest. In the name of Christ. Amen. Please sit down. Uh, the uh, reading is on page 978. It would be useful to have that open in front of you. Well, I doubt there's a, a church in the whole land that uh, doesn't make some reference to Stephen Hawking this week. Stephen Hawking, of course, has, made, has said, it is not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper and set the universe going. Well, what he actually said was it's It's not necessary to invoke God to light the blue touch paper and set the universe going, probably, maybe, and and lots of other caveats, but that doesn't get reported so much. This is the uh, same man who, in April 2010, said, To my mathematical brain, the numbers alone make thinking about aliens perfectly rational. The real challenge is to work out what aliens might actually be like. We only have to look at ourselves to see how intelligent life might develop into something we wouldn't want to meet. I imagine they might exist in massive ships, having used up all the resources from their home planet. Such advanced aliens would perhaps become nomads, looking to conquer and colonize whatever planets they can reach. Stephen Hawking. So why do some people respond to the message of the kingdom and others don't? Why is there such opposition to the gospel? Why do some people believe in God? And others, even very intelligent ones, would rather believe in aliens. These are the kinds of questions that face us tonight and are underlying the passage that we've read this evening. Now, we shouldn't get the impression that any of this is new. Sometimes we think that in the early church, it was all far too easy. Disciples would preach and thousands would be converted. Jesus would uh, walk into a town and crowds appeared from nowhere and, and, and were desperate to see him, all shouting, yippee, yippee, or hula, hula, and climbing trees like Zacchaeus just to get a glimpse of Jesus as he walked past. And indeed, in, in chapter 11 of Matthew, verse 12, we do indeed read that from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing. Why was that? It was because Jesus was preaching with authority. The crowds were amazed at his teaching. Chapter 7, verse 20 says, because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Many had been healed or set free. Free. In chapter 7, verse uh, 3 to 9. And people like Matthew himself, the tax collector, now gospel writer, had been transformed from living a life of sin to becoming a follower of Jesus, chapter 9, verse 9. And so the kingdom is, indeed, forcefully advancing, as chapter 11, verse 12 says. But chapter 11, verse 12 says there's also opposition. Forceful men lay hold of it, it says. The Pharisees are trying to trick him. They criticize him at every turn. John the Baptist is in prison. Nor does everybody believe. Verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 16 says, To what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. They just didn't believe. In a sense, this is the point which is made in the power of the Sir. It's a story which is so well known to us, isn't it? The Sir is Jesus himself. 
That's why, in a way, it is right to call it the parable of the sower in in this section of Matthew 13, because Jesus is the most important figure within it. The seed is the word of God, proclaimed by Jesus. He casts it about abundantly, almost carelessly, to anybody who would hear. But the interest in the parable comes from what John Stott calls the marriage between the seed and the soil. What happens when these two get together? Does the kingdom of heaven come to life when the soil receives the seed of the word for itself? Does it germinate and shoot? Or does it all come to nothing? Somebody else summed it up by saying uh, that the seed and soil combination can lead to shut hearts, shallow hearts, choked hearts, or changed hearts. So I'm going to look at those in turn. So some of the seed falls onto the path. The seed is snatched away, and before it can take root, because the ground is too hard, there's no soil there to receive the seed at all. So seed landing on such ground just leads to shut hearts. And I sense this in some people, don't you? I think if you're a Christian and you're interested in mission and evangelism, then you need to be able to sense this sometimes. There are some people who just have no soil in their lives. They might very politely They might ask questions about church and what you do on a Sunday. They might ask questions about the Da Vinci Code. But really there's no genuine interest there. No real desire to know any more. There are even professors, very uh, clever people, for example at the University of Oxford, who spend their lives studying Christian theology. But they don't believe. Why do they do it? Well, because it's interesting. It's interesting to them. But they've no real intention of changing their lives or changing their behavior as a result of reading God's word. See, the seed of the word lands on the path and it's simply taken away. There is nothing, no soil of spiritual desire in which it can take root. They will never bear a crop. Other seed falls on the rocky ground where the soil is shallow. It warms up very quickly in the Mediterranean sun and the seed germinates and begins to grow. But as the summer heat comes on, there's insufficient moisture in the ground and the shoot shrivels and burns under the scorching sun. Seed landing on such soil just leads to shallow hearts. Notice that when Jesus comes to explain the parable in verse 20, he says that such a person initially receives, appears to receive the word, but the text never says that he understands it. It is received but it is not understood. And you may have met this sort of person as well. They're full of excitement and enthusiasm for a period, but there are no discernible roots of prayer, careful reading the Bible, committed church membership, desire to serve, or fruits and gifts of the Spirit. Yes, they may be great at saying the right things, or getting involved, meeting the right people, throwing themselves into public worship. Lots of froth, but no grit. Without those roots, it's not surprising that when things get tough, all that spark and energy seems to wither away. They will never bear a crop. Our seed falls among the thorns. The soil is good, the seed germinates and grows, but the seed is not able to shake off the influence of the thorns and the weeds, the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth. They choke the growth of the kingdom. Perhaps the uh, pressure is on at work, or you've fallen in love with a non-Christian. Perhaps the kids have become teenagers now, 
And because you love them and you want them to fit in at school, you don't want to impose the heavy burden of taking them to church and sending them to Christian camps and the like. You want, them to show, you want to show them how normal you are by uh, going with them to football on a Sunday morning. The seed landing on such soil can be choked. But other seed lands on the good soil and germinates. The shoots grow and lives are changed. And of course the question from this parable is always, and always will be, which type of soil are you? You see, I think the parable applies to both uh, believers and non-believers. The question is just as important for both. Will you respond to God's word with a shut heart, a shallow heart, a choked heart, or a changed heart? Which type of soil are you? But why is this question so important? The answer to that is found in the middle section of our passage, where Jesus questioned as to why he speaks in parables at all. What is the point of parables? Take a look down at verse 10. The disciples, it says, Mark's Gospel says, that wasn't just the twelve, it was others around them as well. The disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? After all, if I were to speak to you about my last experience of going sailing, when we kept sailing into irons because the main was reefed poorly, so we couldn't make way, and then the main sheet shackle loosened and the boom swung out to port with no way to pull it back to centre. The jib was no good on its own, and my wanderer ceased to wander. And then we got caught up in a regatta between lasers. Now some of you would realise and know that we were in trouble and in danger of being shouted at by members of Hickling Sailing Club. Others of you would have no idea of what I've just been talking about and probably wouldn't want to find out either. Well, you can understand why the disciples asked, why did Jesus speak in parables? The word parable literally means to throw something together. Comparisons and ideas thrown together to make a point or points which are not immediately obvious. Their meaning lies beneath the surface. Yes, We understand that Jesus lived in the storytelling age before Sky Sports. And stories are a good way of getting people to listen. Especially when, as here in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus had been effectively evicted from from the synagogue and become an open-air preacher. So stories were a good way of communicating. But actually, all this talk of pearls and coins and mustard and yeast, it just seems to confuse and makes the message more difficult to take in sometimes. A heavenly message that makes no earthly sense. Especially when Jesus sits down in a fishing boat and starts to talk about farming. At the very least, he could have used the fishing metaphor, fishers of men, part two, for example. Perhaps the disciples are right to think that Jesus had gone a little bit potty. After all, isn't the whole business, the whole objective of the kingdom of heaven is to get people to believe in the kingdom of heaven? Why can't you use some bullet points, perhaps a, a PowerPoint presentation, some video clips, some emotive music to tug at our heartstrings? Instead, we get all this stuff about farming. You see, the reason this passage is so challenging, the reason I've been struggling with this for the last few days, and the reason I struggled last year when I preached the same passage from, Ma- uh, from Mark's Gospel, is that we have to face the uncomfortable truth here, that in some way Jesus is deliberately making it difficult for some people to understand. Look at verse 11. 
the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. You see, this parable and this this passage is not just an observation of what actually happens in real life. It's deliberately setting up an us and a them situation. You see, the parables here act as a kind of sieve or a filter. The parables sort out those who just want to hear from those who want to hear and understand. They sort out the wheat from the chaff, if you like, the people outside the barn from those inside. They sort out who's going to accept the message wholeheartedly from the others, like the Pharisees who are going to oppose it with all their strength. They sort out the disciples and those who come to believe in Jesus from those others, like Stephen Hawking's, who prefer to believe in aliens. In Matthew 10, verse 34, Jesus says, Do not suppose that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. When Jesus' mother and brothers turn up outside the house where Jesus is preaching to a large crowd in chapter 12 and verse 46, Jesus asks, who is my mother and my brothers? Then he points to his disciples and he says, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You see, says Jesus, These people who listen but don't actually understand, they fulfill the prophecy made to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, which Jesus quotes in verse 14 and 15. Isaiah was told back then that the people would be ever hearing but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing seeing but never perceiving. For this people's hearts have become calloused. They hardly hear of their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see of their eyes, hear of their ears, understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. You see, in effect, these parables, not only are they a sieve or a filter, but they effectively, they're in an effective way of ensuring that the spiritual dynamic that you see working out in verse 12 actually works out. Verse 12 says this, whoever has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken from him. At school, I I learned French from about the ages of uh, eight up to 14, six years of French lessons. These days, when my oldest boy uh, asks me to speak to him in French, I say, yeah, no problem, I can speak French. Uh, Citroën, Peugeot, Renault, even croissant. I also learned German for two years. Audi, Mercedes, Auf Wiedersehen, Pet. the result of an ungraded German O-level. You see, I learned French and German at school, but I just didn't get it. I'm not a linguist. And over the years, my knowledge of those two languages has dwindled to next to nothing. Whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. See, I've read about people, I've known a few as well, where there was, uh, who went to schools where there was school chapel every day. Perhaps some of you go to schools like that. And the whole experience just puts them off Christianity. They think it's all about rules, about church attendance, about conforming to a certain way of life, about going through the notions and all that kind of nonsense. Everything except the truth, which is that the gospel 
is not about what we have done or what we can do for God. It is all about the fact that here in verse 12 it says, whoever has will be given more. It's the grace of God, his free gift. It's that that ensures that we receive the love of God and his eternal life. And what is more, we will have that and experience that and know that in this life in abundance. I learned Spanish as an adult. Much harder to do that than when you're eight. But I had an extra interest in learning it, called Sylvia. And since then, I've gone on learning and learning until I get along very nicely in that language now. And it's easy for me to pick up new words and phrases just by reading a Spanish newspaper. In the same way, as we get to know Christ and his love, it becomes easier and easier for us to draw close to God in prayer, to be excited by our relationship with him, to want to serve him, to go on wanting to be filled with the Spirit so that we might grow in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And to be given those special gifts that the Spirit gives us which help us to serve him and produce a harvest of righteousness. You see, the real disciples are the ones who know that they need help. Who know that they need help and they go to Jesus and they ask him more. They are the ones who are blessed. To them are the secrets given and they will be given more, much, much more. Verse 16 sums it up. Blessed, blessed or happy are your eyes because they see and your ears because they hear. For I tell you the truth, many prophets and righteous men long to see what you see but did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. The blessing that we receive. As an aside, if, if you're looking here for an answer to this uh, question of predestin- predestination versus human choice, well, you won't find it here in Matthew 13. There is human responsibility here. You see, the people on the shore who didn't come to Jesus and didn't ask about the parables, they are responsible for that failure. You do have to decide which type of soil you're going to be. That's down to you. But there's also here divine divine sovereignty. God gives in abundance to some and takes away from others. Our response, as ever, should be to give thanks for the grace we've received and feel the privilege of that and celebrate the privilege of that, whilst at the same time doing everything we can to ensure that as few people as possible stay by the shore shore without asking further questions. But the lesson of the parable and the way in which Jesus uses parables is that the words of Jesus do bring division. Now what are you going to do about it? Well, some of you here tonight might need to make a decision here and now about what type of soil you want to be, as I said. Is your, sh- your heart shut or hardened in a way which means you're, not, you're just here for the, wi- the ride? You're not really interested. Well, perhaps I think you should decide. Will you take this investigation into Christ and his claims seriously, or will you take your chances elsewhere, perhaps with the aliens? I jest. But actually, it's a deadly serious choice, isn't it? Are you serious about examining the claims of Jesus and assessing the impact that that would have on your life if they really are genuinely true? Or perhaps you feel that your heart is shallow 
perhaps you need to decide tonight that you're going to put down some roots. Perhaps you need to ask somebody to meet with you, to read the Bible or to, or to pray with you regularly. Perhaps you want to know more about how you can serve others. Then, well, ask us. Realise uh, your lifestyle doesn't match up to the words that we sing in our songs. Well, come and have a chat with one of us afterwards. Speak to somebody you know. Get them to pray with you and lay your lives before the Lord. Perhaps you've been choked by the worries and concerns of this life. You need to get your priorities sorted out. You need to get it sorted out with God. Don't delay. Don't wait until you get to university. You need to do it now before you go. But finally, we need to consider the harvest. And verse 23. Verse 23 says, But the one who received the seed that fell on good soil is the man who hears the word and understands it. He produces a crop, yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what, it was, what was sown. Now the books uh, tell me that if you sow a seed of wheat and the, and the plant that grows has thirty grains, then that would be something below average. If it has sixty grains, that would be about right. A hundred grains would be, uh, would be good, really good, but not miraculous. The point is, I think, that any crop is good. Whether it's 100 times or 60 times or only 30 times, it's all much better than the one grain that you had before. But there's a sense, and there's a sense in which, just as it is our privilege by grace to have been blessed with understanding, it's also our privilege by grace to produce a crop. And whether it grows 30 times or 60 times or 100 times, in one sense, down to the spiritual gifts that we have been given by God. And some are privileged to produce more than others. A similar point is made in chapter 25 in the parable of the talents. The two faithful servants there, if you remember, each produced a 100% return on the master's initial investment. But one obtained the final value of four talents and the other obtained ten talents. But in another sense, it's also our responsibility to produce the largest possible crop that we can with what we have. Some of you are Christians with non-believing husbands or wives. Your crop might be completely invisible to the people around you because you can't be up here, up front, because your partner wouldn't want you to spend so much time. You can't give so much money because your partner wouldn't see the point. But God knows that your crop might be absolutely enormous. He sees that your crop is a day-in, day-out example that you place before that unbeliever who God loves even more than you do. You may not be a public speaker. Perhaps you're not much of a reader. But you care for your colleagues at work. They like to tell you their troubles. And perhaps you pray for them. God knows. He sees your crop. And he is pleased with it. Others of you have superb organisational skills. You raise serious money. You do good in the community. Some of you have even been awarded OBEs. But you yourselves know it's not the public recognition that counts. What counts is that God knows. He sees your crop and he is pleased. 30, 60, 100 times. It doesn't really matter as long as you're making the most of what you have. It's a crop and that is good. What you start with is down to God. What it grows into well, that's anybody's guess. Let's pray, shall we?
Lord, we uh, praise you and thank you for these familiar words. In some ways, a very familiarity means that we are hardened to them. But Lord, we thank you that you've spoken tonight. And we pray that you would produce a harvest in us that exceeds our expectations. And we pray, Lord, that if we're not yet putting ourselves under your word, if we're not yet believing in Jesus, then we would do that tonight before it's too late.